So we're going to try and get through historical context. We should. Theological theme, the day of the Lord, we should. Structure. And we should actually get through the first couple of verses of Joel. So I'm really excited for that. Before we do that, let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for bringing us together, even just on this Thursday night where we can look more into your word. Lord, we can look at the prophet Joel. Lord, I pray that it would be edifying to our minds, but even more so to our hearts, that our hearts would be warmed to love you, um, that we would be more in awe of your grace um, in sending your son to pay for our sins, that this judgment that is so clear in Joel Um, that we do not have to face because we are sheltered by your son and his saving grace. So Lord, I ask as we uh, continue to begin this study, um, that would be done ultimately all for your glory. We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. All right. So um, just as kind of a, you know, getting into it, these should be, if you miss a week or something like that, because I know you guys are traveling, stuff like that, they should be online. Um, If you go to the full archive on the church website, they're there. And I think Roman's going to put up the, the graphic thing to click on, so you're more than more than welcome to do that, um, especially because these last two weeks have been pretty important, especially last week, the literary context, that's getting you up to speed uh, where we are, what's going on with Joel. I can't go through all of that because that would, we'd just be doing that again um, all night, but I do want to mention quickly 1 Kings 11, okay? Um, you guys maybe remember that from last week. You come to actually the beginning of 1 Kings, David is passing away, and Solomon is on the rise. You have this glorious chapter, really this section, really, of 1 Kings 4 all the way to chapter 10, where it's talking about Solomon's reign, and it's just glorious. I mean, there is not any inkling of like, wow, this is bad. I think we're actually supposed to read that text and go, whoa, is this the fulfillment of God's covenant promises for Israel? This, is, this might be it. And it's when we come to 1 Kings 11, and it's very clear, uh, no, it's not, right? It starts with, you know, Solomon loved many foreign women. They turned his heart away from the Lord. And there's just this downward, downward spiral. And in 1 Kings 11, that's where you have the Lord um, through one of the prophets. I can't remember which one. It might be Nathan, but I think it's someone else. Um, says, the kingdom is going to be torn from you, okay? The kingdom is going to be split in two. And, but then he says, you know, for the sake of my covenant with David and my love for him, you know, I'm not going to completely remove the kingdom. He's going to have the southern kingdom, um, but then there's going to be the northern kingdom, okay? This is just contextually, if you guys don't know, this is important to remember. At that point, when the kingdom split, which is 930 BC, I'll get into dates a little bit more, but around 930, when the kingdom split, you have the northern kingdom of Israel, okay? That's 10 tribes, And typically, when you're reading the prophetic literature, Israel is referring to that northern kingdom, those ten tribes. And the southern kingdom is two tribes, okay? That's the smaller ones, um, but generally when you see Judah, okay, that's what it's referring to. So the kingdom split. Does that make sense? Okay. That's kind of important, important to know. And that's the context when we come to Joel, right? So we went through all this literary context. I can't go through all that again. But kind of when we come to 1 Kings 11 and, you know, in the timeline... The question on everyone's mind, if you're an Israelite, is kind of this, has God's covenant promises, is he just done with them? Like, is God forsaken everything, okay? Um, You know, what's going to happen to Israel? And so that kind of gets us to, from literary context over to historical context, okay? Historical context. So that's the top of page three, if you guys have that. I want to give you guys some dates, okay? Give you guys some dates. These are important. Um, 
the exodus from Egypt, we can actually narrow down pretty closely. Um, you could put 1440 BC. You could actually put 1446. Okay, I think we can actually be pretty precise on that. 1446 BC. Okay, remember we're you know we're on the BC side of the timeline, so we're actually counting down. You know now we're counting up. This it goes the other way. Okay, so going forward in time, we're actually counting. Does that make sense? It's like I don't understand. Okay, but you're just counting down. Okay. Yeah, you can get it, I, I believe. Okay, so 1446, okay, you have the Exodus. Then, I would say Solomon's reign probably begins around 970, and it ends around 930. He reigns for 40 years, okay? At that 930 point, 931, 930, somewhere in there, um, is when the kingdoms split, okay? The kingdoms are divided, yeah? 970 to 930, yep. Yeah, Solomon's reign, okay? So the kingdoms split, in that 930, 931, it kind of depends on how you move a year. If you want more of that, I can't talk about dates <laughs> forever. But if you want more of this, Kingdom of Priests by Eugene Merrill is a really good place, really good book to read, okay? That's just my plug for that book, okay? Really good. Okay, 930 BC, kingdom split. In 722 BC, the Assyrians take captive the northern kingdom, okay? So the northern kingdom, how many tribes is that one? Ten, okay? Yeah. So that's the northern kingdom, the ten tribes. And if you guys know this maybe from, you know, kids' Sunday school, Israel, the northern kingdom, did they have any good kings? No. They're all wicked. Israel, the northern kingdom, not good. None of those guys are good, okay? And that's kind of part of the reason why they get exiled first, okay? So in 722 B.C., Assyria, which, by the way, what's the capital of Assyria? Or what was? It was Nineveh, okay? Nineveh. The Assyrians, okay? So when you talk about Jonah, it's like, oh, he's going to go be the prophet to the bad guys who are just about to take us into captivity in a few hundred years. It'd kind of be, you know, like if, I feel like no one talks about ISIS anymore, but, you know, when ISIS was a big thing, you know, five years ago, it'd be like, hey, go to those guys. Those, they're wicked. They're evil, okay? So in 722, Assyria takes the northern kingdom. In 586 B.C., Babylon takes the southern kingdom into captivity, okay? Those are just two dates. I don't have a mnemonic device of how you remember it better. You just gotta, you just kind of remember them. 722 BC, northern kingdom, 586 BC, southern kingdom. Just repeat it to yourself at night, paint it on the inside of your eyelids. I don't know, just, those are some important dates to remember, okay? Um, then you have in 538 BC, um, the people begin to return to the land, and it's not until 516 we see that the temple is actually rebuilt in Israel, okay? So you go 538 B.C., they begin to return back to the land, the people in captivity. 516, the temple is rebuilt. 445 B.C. is kind of when, I'm just going to say, the last Old Testament books are being written, okay? So you think of a guy like Nehemiah, okay? We're reading through Nehemiah on Sunday morning, and you're like, what are all these names, okay? Well, in large part, they're all the people coming back out of captivity. They're coming back to the land, okay? And Ezra and Nehemiah are leaders around that time when Israel comes back to the land. And then you have the prophet Malachi, um, who's also ministering and preaching at that time, okay? And that's when you also have, you know, like the post-exilic books of um, Haggai and Zechariah. Those are written post-exile. So I'm going to say some terms that are, are, they will be important, okay? Pre-exilic, what do you think that means? Like when I say, 
Isaiah was written pre-exilic. Pre-exilic, P-R-E-E-X-I-L-I-C. I have to see it. Pre-exilic, okay? What do you think that means? The book was written when? Before the exile, right? If it's post-exilic, what do you think that means? After the exile, right? Okay. Yeah, so those are some pretty important terms you'll see in, you know, some of the books and I'll probably throw out there. Okay. I'm going to make the argument that Joel is written pre-exilic. Okay. Pre-exilic. Now, I would actually strengthen my... (laughs) My eschatological, if you're like, eschatological is just a study of the end times. I would actually strengthen my argument for interpreting Joel 2 if it's written post-exilic, okay? But I just think that the internal evidence suggests that Joel is written pre-exilic. If you're like, what did you just say? doesn't really matter. That's just me, okay? I think it's written pre-exilic. I actually think Joel is one of the first prophetic books written, okay? I think Joel is probably written 9th century BC, okay? And you're like, whoa. Is that like some crazy view? It's like, no. Actually, one of the only reasons I kind of hold that view is kind of a lot of other smarter guys convinced me of that view, okay? Um, what's that? Ninth century BC. So I don't have an exact year. I would say somewhere around 850 BC. And he's ministering in the southern kingdom, is what I would argue. So the kingdoms are split. Joel is writing around, um, you know, Sometime 850, 840, 830. Now, I will say this. It's kind of insignificant. I'm going to get into why I think it's early. I'm going to give you several arguments. It's actually not that significant for the implications of the book, okay? Um, but I'll just give you, I'll give you some reasons. And you can see this, right? If you guys have your Bibles, Joel is difficult to date for a number of reasons. Just look at Joel 1.1. 1, 1. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. Now, what does that tell us? What's that? He had a dad. Yes. It's not a trick question. It does not tell us that much. Okay? Now, just flip over um, to Amos. Okay? Just, so it's the next book. Just flip a couple pages to the right. Amos 1.1 says this. The words of Amos, who is among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. Okay, so that's actually a really helpful introduction because he tells us when he's ministering, right? During the reign of these two kings, okay? And so you can actually just kind of, you know, track it back, and you can see, oh, okay, this is when, um, you know, Hosea is ministering, this century, okay? Joel doesn't do that, okay? And so there's a number of ways where we can try to understand where he's writing. And all of it really just comes from internal evidence within the book, okay? We just have to try and read the book and from some of these clues understand um, when he's writing, okay? So some of these, actually not some of these, pretty much all of these, are essentially arguments from silence. Do you guys know what that means? It's kind of like, well, it doesn't say this, Therefore, we can maybe conclude this. Like, you typically don't want to base your arguments on silence, okay? But that's kind of what we're left to do here because the text doesn't tell us the days. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, But I think there's some significant things we can observe. Um, I would argue that Obadiah and Joel are probably written 9th century BC and that they're probably the two uh, prophetic books that are written first, okay? Look at Obadiah 
Uh, let's see. So just flip back a couple pages. Obadiah 17. Obadiah 17. I'm going to read it. Listen to this. And I want you guys to understand this. See where I'm coming from here. Obadiah 17, look at what it says. But in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. Okay, now look at Joel 2, verse 32. Joel 2, 32. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen to this. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. Does that sound like what we just read in Obadiah 17, right? Obadiah 17, but in Mount Zion, there shall be those who escape. Joel 2, 32, for in Mount Zion and Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. And then look at what Joel says next, as the Lord has said. So I would argue, and a lot of guys argue, that Joel's just quoting Obadiah 17. You see that? So I would argue that Obadiah is written before Joel. They're both written early, probably 9th century BC, and Obadiah is quoting Joel. Okay, so why an early date? That's just one. Um, I can give you a couple other reasons, okay? Second, because in the Hebrew canon, so when, you know, let's just say Jesus' Bible, Jesus didn't have the New Testament. You guys know that, right? Like, it, he didn't have it yet. It was, the events were happening in his life, okay? And then afterwards, right? And when Jesus has the Old Testament, what we call the Tanakh, that ordering of the, the book of the 12, the minor prophets, Joel is early, okay? It's towards the front, okay? With the other pre-exilic books, okay? So books that are post-exilic, right? Like Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi, they're at the back of that 12, okay? Whereas Joel is towards the front, okay? So that's one argument, okay? Probably pre-exilic because when, you know, the Hebrew people are putting their Bibles together, they're putting it towards the front. Does that make sense? So that's one reason why I would say it's pre-exilic, okay? Second one, in, in well, I've kind of already, I've added another one. Second or third, however you're numbering, or if you're not even taking notes, you can just listen. Um, what I would say this with Joel, and this is distinct, that there's no major sin or there's no major, like, royalty critique, okay, in the book. Now, you'll, you'll see this in some of the other prophets, but they're very clearly condemning Israel for, um, you know, sexual immorality, um, you know, they're failing to uphold justice in the land. Like, all these things, right? Like, he's listing these things. And we can actually trace that back and go, oh, okay, here's what's going on in the reign of, you know, this king. And that's contextually, oh, that makes sense, okay? Joel doesn't do that. He's not actually listing major sins. So the implication would be he's ministering in a time where Israel hasn't gone into just full-fledged paganism. Does that make sense? So that's another reason why I'd push it forward, or maybe you could say back, that it's a later date, like 10th or 9th or 8th century, rather than 7th, 6th, or 5th, because by then, they're full-on pagans, right? Israel's getting worse and worse, okay? So that would be one reason. Um, Joel doesn't mention, like, the royalty, the kings. In fact, the leaders in the land at the time of Joel, we're going to see this when we get into it, seem to be the priests, okay? So we also have to narrow it down, okay, when is there a time in Israel where the royalty or the kings aren't really ruling. And one interesting argument is actually when you go back to, um, remember Josiah, right? When there's this homicide with, you know, Athaliah, I think is her name. 
Um, you know, so Josiah is actually kind of like king on deck, but he's so little, he's so young, that there's actually the priest who rules, um, and he's the one kind of with the authority. So that's one argument is maybe Joel is writing during that context. But again, argument from silence, there's not really a very clear um, argument you could make there. Um, this, I think, is another big one. There's no mention of the big dog superpowers. That's a technical term, big dog superpowers. Um, Joel doesn't mention Babylon or Assyria, okay? We already talked about that. So Assyria takes the northern kingdom, Babylon takes the southern kingdom. Joel doesn't mention those guys. So the implication would be what? They're not on the scene, okay? Joel does mention, you know, some of these powers like Tyre, Sidon, you know, the Philistines, Egypt. Okay, well, those were powers in the 10th, 9th, and 8th century before Assyria and Babylon came on the block, okay? So implication is, okay, maybe he's writing then. Um, let me just give you one more, because I can tell you guys are like, this is just fascinating. Um, let me just give you one more. Is the Joel and Amos connections, okay? So look at Joel, let's see, Joel 3.18. So Amos, like I said, we, we know when he was written, right? You know, he says, you know, during the reign of King Uzziah and um, days of Jeroboam. So Joel 3.18 It says, and in that day the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the stream beds of Judah shall flow with water, and a fountain shall come forth from the house of the Lord. Okay, you flip over to Amos, let me see, I gotta check my notes here, 9.13. The end of Amos 9.13 says this, the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. Oh, well, Joel 3.18 says that the mountain shall drip sweet wine, and the hills shall flow with milk. Oh, okay, so there's some textual connection there. Okay. Now, that doesn't clue us in on like who's written first, but it seems that they're interacting with one another. You guys see that? Same type of language. You see that a lot throughout the prophets. Joel 3.16. I can just read this one. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. And then you flip over to Amos 1.2. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. So same type of language there. So maybe Joel's written first, and Amos is picking up on that, okay? Now, it's not really super clear from that. I think one that helps, that leans even more to that, that Joel's written before Amos, is Joel 1.4. We're going to talk about this hopefully if we have time. We should. Joel 1.4 talks about locusts, okay? That's kind of like the big thing of Joel. He talks about locusts, okay? Grasshoppers, real bad grasshoppers, okay? And they come and they decimate Israel, okay? A bunch of locusts. Well, Amos 4, 9 says this. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards and fig trees, key language to note for later, and your olive trees, the locust devoured. You guys see that there? So Amos is writing after locusts have come and devoured the land, okay? So that's just, that's just a few arguments. I feel like I just need to do that because to give you some context for when is he written, when is this book written? Does that make sense? I think it's early, okay? A lot of smarter guys than me argue for that, okay? So like Abner Chow is my professor at Masters. He argued for an early date, like 840 BC, 830, somewhere in there. Walt Kaiser argues for an early date. Eugene Merrill. A, a lot of, it's actually funny, like a lot of the guys that I really respect, I'm like, oh, they all argue for an early date. And it's not really actually until... 19th century in Germany, this is nerdy, but it's kind of important to know. 
um, 19th century in Germany, and actually even later, kind of gave birth to um, what we would say is like higher criticism. And basically what a bunch of Germans did was they pushed the dates back on everything. So if the original argument was, you know, as ah, written 850 BC, well, because so much of this is like, turns out to be true and it really happened and all this prophecy really happened. And obviously that can't happen because, you know, God's not real. This was actually written after all these things happened around like 300 BC. Does that make sense? That's what happened. It's completely wrong. And as Christians, we reject all that. But that kind of gave rise to like the higher criticism, what we would call, um, where you just kind of, it's taken for granted in the academies today. We're just like, okay, well, everyone knows that, you know, Paul didn't actually write First and Second Timothy. Because that's actually, that's like the general consensus in the academy is that Paul did not write the pastoral epistles, you know, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And it's like, well, all throughout church history, actually everyone claimed that Paul wrote those. It's not until some Germans in the 1800s said no. So that was free. But that's important to know because you'll hear that like apologetically. You know, if you run into really smart atheists, that's what they'll say. It's like, actually, that's not true. So, yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. No, yeah. There's all kinds of. I have not read a lot of the dead Germans over there because it's just there's so many of them. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. No, they're. Yes. Yeah. 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 No, they're not. They're not doing too well now. So. So, yeah. That's kind of the historical context. Anything, anything you guys want to ask on that? Yeah, so they would say that that was uh, an addition by an editor. Yeah. Yeah, or, or it's just, just straight up line, is that it's actually just someone claiming to be Paul. This actually happens with Isaiah. I don't know if you guys remember um, when I was teaching through Isaiah in Old Testament Survey 2, is actually, Isaiah didn't write Isaiah. Actually, multiple Isaiahs wrote Isaiah. And so actually what you had is a single guy, Isaiah, wrote Isaiah 1 to 39. But then actually a second guy claiming to be Isaiah uh, wrote Isaiah 40 to 66. And one of the main reasons because the prophecy is so precise, particularly with the naming of a king named Cyrus, um, hundreds of years in advance, they're like, well, this obviously has to be written after. And so that's what they do, is they'll say multiple Isaiahs wrote Isaiah. And we just go, uh, no, that's garbage. <laughs> and it, what? Right. That prophecy can't be true. Yeah. Yeah, they're going in with presuppositions and ignoring the textual evidence, actually the context. Yeah. So, again, I don't need to get into that. Um, it's, it's very interesting. There's all kinds of good evangelical books you could read on that. Okay, theological theme, Day of the Lord. Day of the Lord. I gave you a, pa a paper there. Um, I'm not going to go over all of it. I just wanted to give you a bunch of, so the first page and the um, top half of the um, second page gives you all the exact usage of day of the Lord, day of Yahweh in the Old Testament. So if you want to do an exhaustive study, there you go. You, you can do it. You, you have all the tools at your hand, um, at your disposal. But I also gave you some passages there that give you, they're not the exact phrase of day of Yahweh, but they're probably pointing forward to um, the same event, okay? So that's that, that's that page. I can't get into that um, tonight. But this is kind of this central theme. You could put this, right? Theological theme, day of the Lord. You could say this is the central theme of, of Joel, the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's. The prophets use this phrase referring to 
both the near, but in particular, um, the far drastic event where God is going to intervene in the world, okay? And typically, especially we're going to see this in Joel, the emphasis is one of judgment, okay? Blessing and salvation is kind of mentioned there, but the overwhelming emphasis is one of judgment, okay? Joel, if you guys have read Joel, maybe in preparation for this, you're like, wow, Joel has a lot of judgment. Yeah, that's what's going on. That's what's going on with the day of the Lord. It's not, this is important too, the day of the Lord, day is not referring to a 24-hour day, okay? You're like, oh, how could you say that? It's like, well, actually, because if you just read all the passages where day of the Lord is mentioned, it's pretty clear that this is not talking about a single 24-hour day, but actually a fulcrum, a, actually, I'll just say this, a basket full of events, okay? It's, it's saying that all this stuff is going to happen, that God is going to intervene and all this is going to happen. Does that make sense? Okay. So day of the Lord is when he's going to act decisively and all this stuff is going to happen. Yes? No. No. Nope. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Back in my day, and you're referring to 70s or 80s. Yes, that would be a good way to put it. Yes. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, an era when God intervenes, okay? And I'm going to skip through some of this, but the prophets are calling for present repentance in light of future judgment, okay? So they're calling for, hey, this is going to happen. You need to repent now. Does that make sense? This is going to happen, so act accordingly, okay? That's what's going on with the day of the Lord. Um. Yeah, let me just give you some examples. There's a lot more I can say. If you want more on this, I can give you some stuff, you know, some books. There's all kinds of good stuff. Um, but I want to give you just textual examples because I'm already running behind time. So Obadiah. Obadiah, I think, is the first prophetic book written. So he's kind of the one who begins this language of day of the Lord. Obadiah 15 says this. For the day of the Lord is near, listen to this, upon all the nations. So this gets into other day of the Lord usage in the Old Testament. Is the day of the Lord just for Israel? No, it's for who? All the nations. So God is going to act, and it's not going to be just for Israel. It's going to be for all the nations, okay? So this is going to be bigger than just Israel, okay? You look at um, Isaiah. You can turn there if you want. If not, just listen. Isaiah 13, this is in the context of an oracle concerning Babylon. Babylon, remember, big bad guy, right? They're the ones that are going to take the southern kingdom captive. And Isaiah is saying, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to read from uh, verse 2, kind of towards the end. On a bare hill, raise a signal. Cry aloud to them. And by the way, this is, verse 1 says, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. So it's concerning Babylon. Verse 3, I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. So God is speaking here and he's saying what? I've summoned my army. My people are, are coming. Okay, sound an alarm. Judgment is coming. The sound of tumult is on the mountains as of a great multitude. The sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. They come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens. The Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. 
Verse six, wail for the day of the Lord is near. As destruction from the Almighty, it will come. Therefore, all hands will be feeble and every human heart will melt. You come down to verse nine. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land a desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. So in context, is this kind of like blessing, salvation, or judgment? Judgment, very clearly judgment, right? For the stars of the heavens and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And you can even see, and I wanted to read that verse because you even see, this is like intervening, intervening with the created order, right? Like things are going to happen to the sun and the stars. Like this isn't just like, you know, a minor thing where, you know, God judges a nation over here by using another nation. Like this is like all the nations, they're all going to be judged and the created order is going to be altered. You guys see that? It's a lot bigger than just a single isolated thing. Let me read Zephaniah. I'm reading you all these books that typically maybe we don't read. Zephaniah, chapter 1, verse 7. Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice and consecrated his guests. Oh, like, God's going to offer sacrifice, and it's like, oh, like, people, whoa. And on the day of the Lord's sacrifice, I will punish the officials and the king's sons. And all who array themselves in foreign attire. And on that day I will punish everyone who leaps over the threshold and those who fill their master's house with violence and fraud. Come down to verse 14. The great day of the Lord is near, near and hastening fast. The sound of the day, excuse me, the sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day, a day of distress and anguish, a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, a day of trumpet blast and battle. Like you just see all this just like, Judgment, 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 judgment is going to come. You guys understand? Day of the Lord, scary stuff, okay? Judgment is coming, yeah? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 Whereas maybe we would say coincidence, but in reality it's probably providential. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that actually kind of brings up a good point, is that actually what the prophets are doing when they're talking about the day of the Lord is that they are referencing a near event of judgment, like in our case with Joel, a locust plague, and saying, hey, because this has happened, beware, because something worse is going to come. Does that make sense? They're actually saying, hey, this is a warning shot. Yeah, this is bad, but you think this is bad. You need to watch out for the day of the Lord, okay? So there's kind of a near and a far. Um, I wanted to give you a couple quotes. This is... um, from a a, a really good commentary on Joel. I just kind of wanted to give you a a couple of points, maybe if you're like, I'm not understanding exactly what you're saying, Caleb. Well, maybe this guy's a little more clear. (laughs) 
But he gives you three points, kind of these features of the day of the Lord. Number one, the day is characterized by an explicit exhibition of the righteousness of God, namely, judgment poured out on sinners and blessing on the penitent, okay? Like, we've already talked about that point, okay, right? Judgment. And when we get to Joel, which, like I said, Joel, Obadiah is probably the first mention of the day of the Lord. Joel is kind of the first one to take that mention of the day of the Lord and expand upon it, okay? So if you're like, I don't really know what the day of the Lord is, that's why we're studying Joel, (laughs) because Joel's going to flesh that out. But number two, it has a, um, excuse me, it exhibits a strong covenantal motif, for it is Yahweh's day, a day having special significance for the covenant people Israel. I think this is important too, that even just with the language of saying Yahweh, which is God's, you know, personal name um, in Hebrew, not Elohim, you know, talking about God or Adonai, Lord, by mentioning Yahweh, this ties this day into the context with Israel. Israel is going to be judged in this day as well as all the nations. So it has a covenantal, that relationship God has with his people Israel, uh, emphasis to it. And then number three, whether or not it chronologically, I typoed, I didn't spell it right or something, but whether or not it chronologically references a near fulfilled event or a more distantly fulfilled event, it is a day described as being near at hand, depicting not a chronological nearness necessarily, but an imminent impending intervention by God, okay? So it's not necessarily how um, someone explains to me, which is really helpful. In the Old Testament, when the prophets are saying, hey, this is near, they're not saying, hey, this is, you know, going to happen in a week from now, or this is going to happen um, in a year from now. They're saying this is the next thing up, okay? Here's maybe an illustration where you're like, I don't get it. Okay, let's say you're flying from Los Angeles to Orlando, Florida, okay? Well, let's say for some reason, you have a layover in Salt Lake City, okay? So you fly, you fly from LA, you go to Salt Lake City, okay? When you get on that plane for Salt Lake City to go to Orlando, that's actually a longer flight, right? Like that's maybe like five hours, I don't know. Like LA to Salt Lake City is like maybe an hour and a half, okay? But when you get on that plane from Salt Lake to Orlando and your wife calls, let's say you live in Orlando, I don't know. And she's like, hey, where are you at? What's your next stop? Oh, hey, I just got on my plane to Orlando. My next stop is Orlando, okay? That's near. That's the next one. But is it actually the longer of the flights? Yes, but it's the next stop. Does that make sense? Maybe it doesn't. I don't know. (laughs) But when the prophets are saying, hey, this is near, they're not necessarily saying, hey, this is going to happen a week from now or a year from now. They're saying it's next. This is what's going to happen, okay? You need to beware of that, okay? So that's what's going on with the day of the Lord. If you're still confused, hey, that's why we're in this class. We're all in this together, and we can all sing kumbaya and get along, okay? Let me move now to structure. Yes? It does not, and we're actually going to see that in Joel chapter 2. You guys may remember the prophecy of, in the last days, I'm going to pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughter will prophesy. They'll dream dreams and see signs and wonders and all these things. That's actually in the context of the day of the Lord. And that's actually a positive thing. Okay? So, yes. It is not always negative, but we're going to see that from Joel. So, thanks for spoiling that, but that's okay. Just kidding. All right. Structure. I'm just going to move really quick through this because I really want to get into the text here. Okay? Structure. 
You have number one, wake-up call, recent disaster. This is going to be the locust plague. What I would do if you kind of want like side notes, points one and two are referring to unparalleled destruction. Point three is kind of this like turn. Points four, five, and six is talking about an unparalleled restoration. So you have unparalleled destruction. You have point three, this call to turn to true repentance, and then four, five, and six is unparalleled restoration. And so four, five, and six very clearly maintain that there's a glorious future for restored Israel. Okay, we are finally in Joel. Okay, Joel 1. Here we go. Joel 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, son of Pethuel. Joel's name means Yahweh is God. Yo-El, you put it together. Yah, Yahweh, El. Yahweh is God. That's what his name means. Joel, the son of Pethuel. I already mentioned this kind of in the introduction. We don't know much about that, okay? We don't know who this guy is. Pethuel, I don't know. But he's probably a good dad because he named his son, what? Yahweh's God, okay? So he has some faith, obviously, in who God is. But this um, introduction, like I said, we already talked about this, it's notoriously short. It's kind of only rivals like Jonah. Jonah, the introduction. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. And it doesn't give us anything else. So again, contextually we're left. Okay, how does this fit together? And I already gave some of those arguments why I think it's an early date. Um, typically, like I said, the prophets give more introduction. You could ask, you know, why doesn't he do this? Like, why doesn't he give us more? The most likely answer, I'm not, you know, dogmatic on this, but probably because he was so well known in the context, right? Like, it's like, oh, it's Joel. Like, like we know who he is. Um, that's probably why he's not, um, you know, mentioned as, you know, this reign, he's, you know, reigning here is that contextually, um, to his audience in the 8th century or whenever he's writing, is that they actually already knew who he was. But this is this standard prophetic introduction. You see this all the time in the Old Testament, right? The word of the Lord that came to Joel. Okay, so whose word is this book? The Lord's. This is his message. This is what a prophet is just to relay. He is a, you know, kind of like a, a steward, right? He takes the message and says, here it is. He doesn't alter it or anything like that. And it's also significant that it says the word of Yahweh, okay? Yahweh goes back to, again, this is a passage if you don't know, you need to write this down, Exodus 3.14. Exodus 3.14, does anyone know contextually what's going on there? Exodus 3.14, Moses, he's at a burning bush, right? And Moses says to him, you know, the bush, well, he's talking to a bush, but God is in the bush, in the flaming bush. You know, God is saying, hey, you're going to lead my people out. And Moses says, hey, you know, if, if uh, you know, the Egyptians are like, who is this God? What should I tell them? What is your name? And how does God respond? He says, I am who I am. Yeah. He actually goes on, and you're like, I, I, what's going on there? Well, one, there's a Hebrew play on words is that the word, the verb for I am sounds a lot like Yahweh. And so actually what's going on there is Yahweh is saying, I am who I'm going to demonstrate myself to be in the Exodus, okay? And there's a lot going on in Exodus 3.14. But in part, he's saying, who I'm about to demonstrate myself to be 
in destroying Exodus, you guys remember all the plagues? I am the God who is. I am the only God who is. I am the only God who exists and have always existed. This is his covenantal name. Israel recognizes this. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel. This is a call back to the covenant. A call back to the covenant. Joel 1, verse 2. Hear this, you elders. Give ear all inhabitants of the land. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? Tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children to another generation. Okay, I want to go back. Verse 2, hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Think back. Was anyone here when I was doing Old Testament 2 and going through Isaiah besides me? (laughs) Obviously. Lori? Hey, Lori, does this remind you of anything? Huh? What's that? Okay. Anyone. You don't have to be in that class. What does this verse remind you of? Hear this, you elders. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Anyone? Does it remind anyone of any book? I just mentioned it. Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 2 says this. Hear... O heavens, and give ear, O earth. Okay, Joel says what? Hear this, you elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. So it's the same language of hear and give ear. You guys see that? Same words, okay? Now maybe you're like in Isaiah, it's like, uh, I don't get it. Why is he talking about heavens and earth? Like that just seems really random, okay? Go back to Deuteronomy. I'm telling you, in this class, you need your Bible and you're gonna flip a lot. Because I want you to see, actually, in the passages what the prophets are talking about. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 30. Again, this is in the context. God is giving the law a second time to the second generation of Israel, right about their, when they're going to go into the land. You guys remember this? First generation died out because they what? They sinned, disobeyed, yeah. Okay, second generation is about to enter in, and we have this list in chapter 28 of Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. You guys remember that? We talked about that last week, okay? Well, in chapter 30, verse 19, look at what Moses says. Someone read it. Deuteronomy 30, verse 19. Stop. I call who? And earth, okay? Look over at Deuteronomy 31, verse 28. Someone read it. Same thing. He's calling who? Heaven and earth to witness against them. Okay. Isaiah is saying, he's opening his prophecy kind of with this covenantal courtroom language. You could say Israel is on trial and God is calling the witnesses. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. And then he lists all these transgressions of Israel. Joel, similarly, hear this, you elders, give ear all inhabitants of the land. If Isaiah is calling the witnesses, who is Joel summoning? The guilty party themselves. You guys see that? You guys see what Joel is doing there? He's saying, hey, you guys need to pay attention. 
listen up. This is you guys. You have sinned. You have done this wrong. Hear this. Give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Keep reading. Has such a thing happened in your days or in the days of your fathers? This, this event, he's saying, is unparalleled. This is something never before seen. This is unheard of in Israel. What is taking place? This is, I would argue, and we're going to see, this is purposeful on God's part. This is, um, he's intervening in history in this moment in Israel to get their attention. What does he say? Next verse, tell your children of it and let your children tell their children and their children. There's a lot of children in this, in this passage. This is, you know, for Crossway, we've got lots of kids. And their children to another generation. Okay? This is to be known. This is to remember. This is, hey, you need to pass this down. You all need to remember this. And we haven't even got to like what are we supposed to remember? We haven't even got there yet. But, but you need to remember this. Be deliberate. You need to know not just that this happened, but the meaning and the significance of it, right? Why did this happen? You need to recount. Read verse 4. What the cutting locust left, this is it, okay? Has such a thing happened? No, this is what you need to tell your kids. Verse 4. What the cutting locust left the swarming locust has eaten. What the swarming locust left, the hopping locust has eaten. And what the hopping locust left, the destroying locust has eaten. Okay, there's four different words in this passage for locust, okay? Actually, in the Hebrew Bible, there's either nine or ten words for locusts, okay? There's a lot of different words for locusts. <laughs> and can you see my locust even up there? Roman photoshopped that in for me. See the little locust on this? It's like you can't even tell. It's like so good. Yes, well, you know, similar species. They're, they're related, yeah. You know, this is maybe a young locust. If you guys haven't, by the way, just go on YouTube. Type in, like, locust plague. It is insane. Like, it is, I'm going to get to this later, like, insane. And, and nowadays, we have some technology where we can deal with them. But generally speaking, like, if a locust plague comes, especially, you know, in this context, 8th century A.D., you're done. Like, you have no food. You're, you're, you're going to die. Like, locust plague is devastating. You have a question? Yes. So that's actually, that's actually an interpretive issue. So does anyone here not have the ESV? What do you have? Okay, read verse 4. Yeah, so there you have canker worm. What are the other ones? Pell worm, palmer worm. Yeah, so actually in, there, there's kind of a debate on, and it's not really that significant, but it's like, is he talking about four successive, you know, waves of locusts? Like, you know, baby locusts, teenager locusts, big daddy locusts who eats everything. Like, like what's going on here? like with the locusts, okay? And so that's why you have those different translations. Um, I actually don't think it's that significant. I think what he's trying to say is this is complete and total destruction, okay? I mean, you guys see this. Remember Amos? Actually, maybe you don't. I don't know. I just assume everyone's in the Old Testament class. But in Amos 1 and 2, in all these decrees, uh, Amos 1, 3, for three dis uh, transgressions of dis 
let me read that again. For three transgressions of Damascus and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. Okay, you come down to Amos 1.6. For three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. You just keep reading through Amos. He does that over and over and over, all these nations. For three transgressions and for four, okay? You guys remember Isaiah 6.6? 6, 6? Isaiah, I think it's 6.6. 6. Might be earlier. It's Isaiah chapter 6. Maybe it's verse 3. But when Isaiah sees the Lord, what does he say? What do the angels say? That he's high and lifted up. Yes, that's very important. But they say he's holy, holy, three times, okay? In Hebrew, when you want to say, there's no like superlative, you know, in, in the same way that we have it in the English language. So when you want to say someone is the definition of something, you say it three times, okay? Like that's emphasizing, hey, God is holy. He's not just a little holy. He's holy, holy. Actually, he's the definition of what it means to be holy, okay? So when you go from three to four, that's almost like what? Like, it's too much. Like, it's so much. And that's what's going on in Amos, is that their sin is so serious, it's gone beyond, and that's why it needs to be judged. Well, what's, how many locust plagues are there? Four. So in other words, this is serious devastation. Yes. It's Isaiah 6. I think it's verse 3. Isaiah 6. Yeah. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Isaiah 6, 3. Yeah. We have it repeated three times. You also see it in Jeremiah. I can't remember. It's very rare in the Old Testament where you see a word repeated three times like that. Like holy, holy, holy. Okay. I'm running out of time, but I do want to mention... I'll leave you guys kind of here on this cliffhanger. It's a really good place to actually pick up. This is actually a kind of the major, one of probably, there's two major interpretive issues in Joel. This is the first. And the issue is this. Are the locusts real or are they symbolic? That's actually the issue. Are they real or are they symbolic? What do you guys think? Real? Real? Does anyone think they're symbolic? Kenyon does. Well, you're wrong. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, yeah, I, do, I don't think they're symbolic at all. I just want to see if I could kind of bait and switch anyone. I think they're real. And let me just give you some reasons, okay? Uh, number one, in the rest of the Old Testament, every single other place that locusts are mentioned, we should just take them literally and real. There's no other place where we go, oh, obviously this is symbolic for not locusts, okay? Does that make sense? Here's one issue. If you say... Joel 1, verse 4. Actually, these are symbolic locusts. Well, what do you do with, like, Exodus 10? You guys remember Exodus? What's one of the main plagues? Locusts, okay? Actually, that's very significant. This is preview of coming attractions. Exodus locusts, Joel locusts. Anyone think of any other book? Maybe one that's kind of like we don't read because it's kind of scary towards the end of the Bible that mentions locusts? Revelation. Where do you think... The Apostle John is getting his, I'll just say, inspiration. I would actually just say this. Where do you think John is getting his material when he talks about locusts coming in judgment? Joel and going all the way back to Exodus. Okay? That we're actually meant to read these in context with one another to understand, oh, here's what's going on. Okay? So, number one, locusts always real in the rest of the Old Testament. Number two, I'd say this. The emphasis throughout Joel, especially in the verses that are going to follow, the emphasis is on agricultural destruction, okay? When you have an army, so this is the other interpretation, is that Joel, uh, uh, the locusts are actually just referring to, like, the Babylonian army. These are the people who will push the date 
forward a little bit, say he's writing around the 6th century, is that actually the locust is symbolic for a, a human army, okay? Well, when you have a human army that comes into the land, are they typically destroying everything agricultural? Like, they might do that, but is that primarily what they're doing? No, they're, like, killing you, <laughs> and they're burning your homes and taking you into captivity, okay? So that's another thing. The emphasis in Joel is on agricultural destruction. Number three, I'd say this, um, is that when the Bible wants to speak of symbolic locusts, it specifies. So remember how I mentioned Revelation? I actually, I'm going to turn there real quick. When the Bible wants to be symbolic, it specifies that it is being symbolic and that there's more to it. So this is Revelation 9, verse 7. <laughs> like, just paint this picture in your mind. Like, if, if we're to take this at, you know, like, we, we make it literal. We overemphasize the literalness of it. Revelation 9, verse 7. In appearance, the locusts were like, so even see John's language here, in appearance, they're like this. He's saying, here's some instrument of God's judgment, and I almost don't even have words to describe it, okay? In appearance, the locusts were like horses, prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. Like, I don't know what picture you guys are seeing, but I'm like, what in the world is that? Like, I, it's something terrifying, but I don't think it's actually literally woman's hair and lion's teeth and stuff like that. It's something terrifying. Does that make sense? And you can see that from the language. It's like this. It's like this. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions. Their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have his king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon and in Greek he's called Apollyon. It's the destroyer. It's Satan. It's like, whoa! That's some craziness. I think it's symbolic, pointing to something. The symbols are real, pointing to something real. What that exactly looks like, I don't know. Does that make sense? What's going on there? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think he's seeing something crazy, and it's like, it, it's, it's like this, but it's not that. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, that's symbolic. Okay. I need to end. So why I would say the locusts are literal um, they're literal everywhere else in the Old Testament. Number two, the emphasis throughout is agricultural damage. Number three, the Bible wants to speak of symbolic locusts. It makes it clear. This is the fourth one. This is where we'll pick up. It best fits Joel's use of Deuteronomy. It best fits Joel's use of Deuteronomy. Joel is walking through everything that's going on around him, the current events of the day, you could say with deuteronomic spectacles, okay? It's like deuteronomic. I'm just saying like Deuteronomy. He's reading the events of what's going on through the context of Deuteronomy chapter 28 and chapter 30, which we're going to get at next week. And he's saying this is why this is happening, okay? So that's kind of the cliffhanger I'm leaning on. So if you, if you want to do homework, read Deuteronomy 28. Read Deuteronomy 28 and read Deuteronomy 30 then I think it's going to massively impact and help you understand the book of Joel, okay? I need to end.
Are you guys happy that we're actually looking at verses now? Okay, me too. This is where it gets interesting. This is where the word of God starts to kind of come alive and you see it in ways and connections. I mean, even I was studying it. You know, you see that connection in, you know, you know verse two, hear this, um, you elders, give ear. And it's like, oh man, that's like Isaiah. I've read this before. Oh, I know what he's doing. He's calling the guilty party to the stand and he's saying, hey, listen up. And that actually helps you understand the book. Does that make sense? I mean, that, that, that's awesome. That's when you actually see, okay, all this stuff about, you know, locusts and we're going to get into drunkards and things of a lioness, it's not random. It's actually significance. We just need to get into that Israelite Jewish context, right? So, all right, you're dismissed. See you guys next week.